tell women to masturbate all the time. <laughs> um, and not just to masturbate the way that they're used to masturbating, um, but to have hand to skin contact, to feel around for areas of different sensitivity levels, to take notes, to give feedback. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a big one because I have a lot of female clients for whom this, this very topic is it's difficult of like understanding what it is that they like and then telling a partner, you know? The reason that they don't understand what they like is because women have been socialized to receive whatever a man gives them as good or not so great, but don't tell him that because male egos are fragile. That was Maisha Battle, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 112. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad you're joining me today. This episode is part of season 13, which to be honest, feels totally wild. (laughs) Have we really made 13 full seasons? Apparently, yes, yes, we have. And with each new season, I'm more in awe and more grateful than ever for the way that my guests are willing to show up and to be real about their messy, imperfect lives. I'm also super grateful for you, for listening, for taking two minutes to leave an iTunes review. Seriously, this is such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. And of course, I'm grateful for those of you who support and fund the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, and in 2018, you can look forward to five new seasons. That's the plan, five full new seasons in 2018, and they will be more honest than ever before. I would also love the chance in 2018 to meet you in person. Um, My hope is to do 10 small, intimate, and fun Real Talk Live events. I did the first two um, in August and September of 2017 in London and in Portland. And I am hopefully heading to Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, DC, and more. And you can find details and grab a ticket at NicoleAntoinette.com slash events. If you are interested in doing this real talk thing in person and becoming friends in real life, that would be so much fun. In the meantime, I have a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but in case you're new to the show, I wanted to first take a second and just quickly explain what we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are committed really to just one simple, powerful thing, and that's telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. No one has a magic bullet, 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything at all. I am a recovering self-help addict. That's my sort of like joking, but not so joking (laughs) description of myself. And I'm so over that approach. And I bet that you are too. That's probably why you're here. So that kind of thing is not what the show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others. And we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and just about everything in between. 
This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects and, warning, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. (laughs) So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You might've heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, that's a vote. You're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. And when you support this show, you're just saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic at all should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for more Real Talk Live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Maisha Battle. Maisha is a certified sex and dating coach, writer, and speaker. Through coaching and her sex-positive podcast, Down For Whatever, Maisha provides accurate sexual information and encourages the quest for sexual satisfaction no matter a person's race, gender, orientation, ability, or age. More than anything, she empowers her clients, listeners, and readers to embrace better sex for a better life. In this episode, she tells us what sex coaching is and who it's for, and she shares the most common reasons that folks seek her out. She also gives details about some of the specific tactics and homework assignments that she uses to help her wide range of clients. We talk about the importance of owning your desires and exploring what makes you feel sexy, as well as how to keep sex hot in long-term relationships. She shares her favorite sex toy, tips for online dating, and so much more. This was such an informative and honest conversation, and I hope that you'll love getting to know Maisha and her work as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Maisha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nicole. I am delighted. We're going to talk about some good, juicy stuff. Yay. (laughs) So to get started... Tell me what you feel most proud of from 2017. Oh, my goodness. So much. Um, I launched my sex coaching business in 2016, not really knowing where this was going or what my life would look like as a sex coach. And I feel like 2017, I really came into owning the identity of a sex coach and telling the world who I am and not only showing that on an individual basis when I'm you know, taking lift rides and they ask me what I do for a living, but also through my presentation of myself through my business. I'm really proud of what I've built in terms of an online presence and my client work 
everyone that I work with is amazing. (laughs) So I know that I'm doing something right. That's how I feel. Mm, That's such a good way to put it. So you mentioned really owning what you do, whether it's to the Lyft driver or, you know, online or social media. Was there a time at the beginning where that wasn't the case? Yes. Um, I had a very bizarre start or launch to my business where, um, as you know, I have my own podcast down for whatever. And I had someone reach out like the day that I launched my actual website, myishabattle.com, like it was, it was a little bit strange, but this person had been a listener and he wanted to learn more about what I do, do a consultation call, which at that point I was, I was giving a lot more of my time for consultations. And, um, that situation became kind of frightening. Um, that he was reaching out via text and saying he loved me. And um, it wasn't the greatest start to this idea of, oh, this is my new career. You know, hello, Mm -hmm. welcome. You're a sex coach. This is what happens to you. You know, Um, so I, I was pretty gun shy in the beginning because of that experience right out of the gate. And I wondered if there really was a place for what I do in the world. And if there was a place, was it, was it the place for me, if that's who I was going to attract? Mm-hmm. Right. So, How do you do the work you want to do without like being filled with creepy dudes? Yes. And I am very proud to say that my work is no longer, it doesn't contain any creepy dudes. And in fact, I've gotten really good at creepy dude spotting. So <laughs> <laughs> Teach us all your wisdom. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have any mentors or teachers in this space or was this really kind of a going it alone thing for you when you first started? I've had so many mentors, I think, in different forms throughout my life. Um, But most recently, the work of Dr. Patty Britton has been transformational for me. So she is the mother of sex coaching I work for her part time um, at the organization that trained me, Sex Coach U. So she's really this guiding light and an example of this is how you can build your practice and actually expand uh, into the world of curriculum development, education, speaking, book writing as a sex coach. So she's at the moment my strongest mentor, but um, I have to say that the way I got here was by having a lot of strong mentors in business and and in my friendships, Um, just people who had faith in whatever I chose to do and (laughs) supported me from, you know, that first point A back when I was like in middle school as a peer counselor to now having my own business as a sex coach. Mm, Okay. So between middle school and now, obviously a lot of time (laughs) and things have happened. I'd actually love to hear that story, the story of how you got into this work. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it all started when I was (laughs) working in New York and I, I actually moved to New York after college and I had been dabbling in the world of sex, meaning that I had a my undergrad degree is a health educator and I studied abroad in Amsterdam. I was studying gender and sexuality and I had this like seed of an idea that I would move to New York and become some sort of like curator of erotic art. Like that was like my big New York dream, I guess. 
but I honestly didn't know what I wanted to do. And I ended up falling into cultural exchange, which is another passion of mine. I love to travel. I love the idea of cross-cultural knowledge exchange. So I became, um, kind of like worked my way up the ladder to like almost a C-suite position in this nonprofit doing cultural exchange. And around 29, my Saturn return, um, I had been in touch with a woman who was doing some work with some consulting for our organization. And I like to think of her as my, my fairy god aunt, Cheryl Curtis, who is also now a coach. And she had a sit down with me to talk about my career and my professional development. I was at a crossroads and she encouraged me to think back to what I really loved doing as a kid. And that was sitting in a room with my peers as a peer counselor and talking to them about their sex and dating lives that were just starting to happen. So I knew I had to make a switch and I thought that that, that switch would involve me becoming, becoming a sex therapist. So I pursued my master's in psychology, not quite knowing if I wanted to go on to become a therapist, but wanting to get back into learning about individuals and individual difference and just figuring out my my path there. And that's when I learned about sex coaching, because at the end of my term at the new school in New York, I was trying to decide, okay, is the next step a PhD or, or something else? And I reached out to a listserv and Dr. Patty wrote to me and she's like, I don't know if this is something that would appeal to you, but based on what I read from your email, it, it might be, there was no pressure. There was like, you know, this is what it is coaching, which is this framework of helping people identify their goals and to set realistic objectives for themselves, which was something that I learned back in my public health, health education days And so that framework was very familiar and comfortable for me. And then the study of sexology, which is something that I did in Amsterdam and really focused on and loved. So this just brought everything together and felt so right that Mm. I had to pull the trigger. Mm, I love it. From thinking you were going to curate erotic art. (laughs) That's a a New York dream that I haven't heard about. (laughs) I still want to. but (laughs) Listen, I I, I would go. I think you should do that. So funny. Um, So there's probably going to be a bunch of times during this conversation where I ask you what might be seemingly silly questions, especially in terms of term definition, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, You just use the word sexology. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It's the study of sex. Okay. So yeah, just the study of sex, like biology, the study of life and organisms. Sexology is the study of sex, all things sex related. How would you sort of categorize the difference between sex coaching and you said you were thinking about sex therapy, like the difference between coaching and therapy in your mind? It's a great question. And it's not just in my mind what the differences are, but there are very concrete um, approaches to both. So I kind of outlined what it is to be a coach. And this is if you're a transformational coach, if you're a business coach, if you're a life coach, we all have the same framework of we assume that people have the resources within them to achieve their goals. And we work with a relatively healthy population. Uh, We don't tend to focus on what happened in the past unless it's really helpful to jumpstart the conversation of, okay, what do you want in your future? We're very proactively minded to get people from point A to point B. Whereas in therapy, in, you know, counseling and any sort of therapeutic environment where you're seeing a, a therapist or counselor, 
you're looking back at how your way of being was formulated through childhood into adulthood and, and beyond. And of course, the goal is to help you to be a better person in the present and hopefully in the future. But there's a lot of reworking of the past, right? And mm-hmm. I, am, I am a product of therapy. I believe in therapy. I encourage everyone to go through therapy. But it, it wasn't necessarily a modality for me. And, and part of the reason is, is a bit logistical it, because you have to go on and get your um, either a PsyD or some kind of counseling master's or a PhD. And in those programs, you're learning about uh, the framework that we currently use to diagnose and treat mental illness. So we're looking at psychoses, um, you know, different levels of ability, that type of thing. So I, re- I recognized that that wasn't a good use of my time to devote time, money, energy into learning about disorders, diseases, psychoses that for one, I'm even skeptical about their, their definitions. So I didn't really buy into that. And and then going to the new school didn't really uh, help with that. They're also very skeptical, a Mm -hmm. a very progressive program. Um, But uh, I also was like, well, ultimately, if I just want to be talking to people about their sex lives, it's unnecessary for me to get that level of training. Mm-hmm, definitely. So with sex coaching, then obviously you just, you laid out the framework for kind of what coaching is in general, but sex coaching specifically, can you talk about really what it is and who it's for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sex coaching is for everyone. And my clients will tell you that they didn't believe it was for them to begin with. And they were taking a big leap of faith but now they understand it really is for everyone. If you're single, if you're partnered, if you're struggling, if you're well, it's really a way to examine this aspect of our lives, all of our lives, regardless if you're asexual or pansexual, and we can talk about that definition too. Um, but it's it's really for everyone to devote time, energy, learning, resources on this area of life that we as a culture in Western society have not given people the proper tools to understand their own bodies, the way it works, the way it responds to pleasure. We don't give a lot of permission to experience pleasure. So the coaching space is great for that. I do a lot of work with people just to get them to the point to believe that they should be having pleasurable experiences in life in general, but also as a sexual being out in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's also for you know, I do a lot of just like one-offs. So someone might be just, you know, really in a crisis mode and they just need a little bit of like, "Mm, okay, this is the information I was missing to get myself to this different way of thinking about this problem that I've been experiencing. Um, Yeah. So it, it really is for everyone and it can be done in so many different ways in terms of time commitment. Um, I work via Skype. So you know, you can see me from anywhere in the world, which is great from the comfort of your own home, which is really, I think, important for a lot of people to feel comfortable talking about something that is so charged. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like, I mean, I'm sure the answer is yes, so maybe this isn't the right question, but I was going to say, do you feel like there are any prevalent myths or misconceptions about sex coaching, like any myths that you want to dispel about your work and industry? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Yes, I think the general idea is that when I tell people I'm a sex coach, 
Um, they think that I'm, I'm actually watching people have sex and giving them feedback or that I am participating in some way in a sexual way with my clients. So that's myth. Number one is that my practice is talk only. There are people for whom their sex coaching does look maybe closer to that, or, you know, their sex surrogates or their sex workers who are also trained in sexology. And so they have the, the same knowledge and know how that I do to help move people through problems, but they're what we would consider to be hands-on. There's also sexological body workers who are coaches, and that is like melding this, these worlds of massage therapy and body modalities with sexology. So understanding how the body works and helping people to achieve their sexual goals. So I think what people should understand is that I, I work with people who are experiencing issues in their erotic life, but I don't participate in their erotic life, mm-hmm. I guess. That's like something as, as like a distinction. And, I, and I'm not saying that to put any judgment, but I'm trying to help to help people understand <clears throat> that there are fewer hurdles to working with me than they may think. Right. Yeah, sure. So. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, so another term you just mentioned that I would love for you to define sex surrogacy. Yes. Um, so a surrogate is someone who works with a person with potentially like a chronic sexual illness or um, just an issue. So potentially like a male client with erectile issues. Um, and again, in my, in my world, I don't, I tend not to use the word dysfunction or any of these clinical terms, but so you'll hear me use words that are more geared towards coaching and like acceptance and all bodies are different, et cetera. <clears throat> so someone who is experiencing, um, long-term issues with bodily function, or who, for whatever reason, has had really limited exposure to partnered sex, can hire a certified surrogate, someone who who does work with them in a sexual capacity to help them understand how their body works and responds, and also to give them the tools to learn how another person's body works with theirs. Hmm. So interesting. Mm -hmm. There's so much stuff that I don't know about, and I am so excited to learn from you. Yeah, there's a great movie about this called The Sessions. I believe that's what it's called. Um, And it is based on a real person who uh, is a sexual surrogate. And I'm looking on IMDb now to see if I can give you the woman's name because I'm terrible with remembering actresses names holly helen hunt helen hunt is the lead in this and it's great okay well that just got added to my list i'll make sure to put that in the show notes it's a Um, really beautiful film yeah so uh, a phrase that i have seen you use a bunch in your work um that i would also love for you to uh define is um what does it mean when you to be sex positive Mm -hmm. sex positive is this term that was coined to address the pervasive negative and conflicted ideas that most of us grew up with so this idea that sex is dirty a sin gross so save it for someone that you really love in the confines of marriage Mm. that does not make any fucking sense (laughs) and yet so many many of us got that message it's disgusting your body's gross whatever it's doing is wrong um you're 
hormones dictate everything and you're just a slave to them. And so if you give in to them, you're lesser of a human being. But make sure that you are a lesser human being with this one person that you've chosen to spend the entire rest of your life with. Right. Don't be sexual at all until you're in this context and then be incredibly sexual. And then in most cases, I'm sorry to say this, but it it doesn't tend to work out that way. There's a lot of learning that should be encouraged about ourselves, about what our bodies are capable of. They are miraculous, wonderful creations. And yet we, we put all this guilt and shame on young people as they're growing up and really starting to understand and starting to learn about how their bodies function. And then we expect them to have these thriving, wonderful, passionate, movie-style sex lives. It's just not, it's not, it, it's totally backwards thinking. So sex positivity assumes that every person is a sexual being from birth. You are, you are created of sex. You have a genitalia when you are born that is not just for procreation, but for pleasure. And when you assume that the body is here to experience life from a pleasure perspective, everything changes, everything changes. So sex positivity is let's raise up this idea of sex. Let's take away the guilt and the shame. Let's educate people about what their bodies can do for them. And let's teach them to be responsible with what they do with their bodies. Mm -hmm. Was that a mindset that you were raised with or all the things that you just described, sort of the opposite of sex positivity? Was that stuff that you've had to unlearn as an adult and through this work? I'm curious on your sort of introduction to this. My mom was my main instructor in the world of sex, and she is incredibly sex positive. She's a very quiet person. So when she does say something, to me, it carries a lot of weight. And I remember speaking with her early on about, you know, this idea. I knew that my parents were not married when they had me. So putting two and two together, they had sex before marriage. And I grew up in the rural South. So I was getting a lot of messages from older adults and even my peers that, you know, sex outside of marriage was a sin. When I, and I thought, well, that can't be because that's how I was made and I'm amazing. So, I mean, can't be true. So I, uh, I, I was asking my mom, I think later on in life, maybe in my like middle school or something about, about this. And she was like, why would you ever want to commit your life to someone with whom you have bad sex? Like, don't do it. You know, it was that kind of conversation that sex was a priority in a relationship and that it should be considered as a quality to judge a relationship by. And only then, after having that experience and knowing that you connect with this person sexually, should you you know, move on to other stages of the relationship and commitment. So I really, I grew up with that. Um, I, I know that she had her relationships where that wasn't the case, because as an adult, we've talked about that. So she, she learned her lessons and she wanted to impart them on her daughter, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how it went. And I remember when I first had sex and told her about it. And if one of the first things that she said, which was not what a daughter wants to hear from her mom, but she was like, it's okay. I love having sex. It's great. You know, like what are, you know, what, what do we need to do next? You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. She was actually really pissed off that I told my doctor that I was having sex before her. It was, she was offended. 
Um, so yeah, I think that I grew up with sex positive messaging. I also did not grow up with the presence of a strong religious upbringing. So I think all of those things came in handy for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the little bit that you just shared about, um, you know, about your mother, even that I feel like, unfortunately, is really rare to have that kind of sex positive role model. Yeah. I mean, for a woman to say to her daughter, I love having sex. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really amazing. It's a gift that I, you know, I, I really appreciate. And if she's listening, thank you. Oh, can you, I'm sure that there's, you know, a million different reasons, but can you give me some specific examples of why people come to you? Like, let's say a new potential client reaches out. Why? What do you find yourself hope, helping folks with most often if they're is a, such a thing as most often or common themes? Yes. When I started this work, uh, part of my training was understanding what were the top concerns of uh, most people, you know, if they, general categories of things. So um, sexual functioning difficulties, we'll just put that in a broad category. Um, I can't orgasm or, you know, I can't maintain an erection, that sort of thing. Um, mismatched desire one partner wants more sex than the other one and it causes tension in the relationship and then sexual communication. Uh, so I'm telling you this, but it seems like you're not getting it. There are certain aspects of my sexuality that I want to enact, but I don't know how to communicate that to my partner. And so we're stuck in this wheel of monotony. Um, and there's also the common trend of, sex changing as the relationship changes, which unfortunately, this is another thing that our society tells us when we find the one that, of course, sex will be great, and it will be great with that person in perpetuity. Every time we want to have sex, they're going to want to have sex with us, and it'll be great. <laughs> so we set, each, we set ourselves up for a lot of disappointment, but those are kind of the common areas that I work with people around, um, orgasm and, and, and sexual functioning, um, mismatched desire, and then building communication skills. I also really enjoy, as an aspect of my practice, working with people around dating. So that's an option that I, I give my clients as well. So we work on um, dating skills and uh, finding a partner for them based on their values and what they're looking for. And I help with, uh, if they have an online profile, dating profile, I help them edit that and to put, you know, put, information out there that's going to attract the right kind of people to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the communication issues that you mentioned, I don't know, I think about that a lot, how sex is something that for the most part, obviously, this isn't true for everyone, that we're not really taught that much about, we're told sort of not to talk about, it's taboo, like you said, it's dirty, it's bad, it's this, it's something that happens in secret, it's not ladylike to discuss it, you know, insert any cliches or whatever here, that we're not really given vocabulary vocabulary around it, even like how to think about it for ourselves. It's like, it makes me think of this question, like, why is it so hard to talk about sex? And I mean, I guess maybe that's why, but do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, it's hard to talk about sex because we're not supported as a culture in it. Um, it was a very different experience living in the Netherlands and having examples of, of how this could be different. So, for instance, hearing about my friend who dated a Dutch guy and stayed over at his parents' place 
And in the morning, they're getting, you know, breakfast started for both of them and just casually asked, you know, how was the sex last night? You know, that, that, that a, that a person might be interested in and supportive of the experience of having sex from a you know parental standpoint is completely unheard of in our society. And yet, this is an example that counters that, that when you create an environment where this is something that you talk about, just as you would talk about the weather, it becomes less charged and it becomes a lot easier to talk about. If you have ever had a conversation with someone who is close to you and you disclose something that you really like or that you did have sex with someone the night before and it was great and it took you to new heights and all these things and they respond with, that's fucking disgusting. I can't believe you would say that to me. You learn very quickly that's not what I'm supposed to talk about. And over time, those messages get so ingrained that it becomes that much harder to bring it up. And this is the rut that people get into when something changes within a relationship and it affects their sex life and then no one talks about it. So this cycle continues of we're not talking about it so it's not getting better, but we don't want to bring it up because it's so sensitive. If it Mm -hmm. wasn't so sensitive, (laughs) then more people would talk about it. Um, So that's a lot of my work is talking about this stuff as I would talk to you about how I like my coffee in the morning, you know, just very straightforward. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is what I like. And I encourage my clients to try to adapt to that mentality as well, which is hard. It is very hard. Yeah. I think that's definitely one of those things that it sounds, it's easier said than done, right? Like it sounds awesome when you're talking about that. Was there a process for you either through, you know, the education that you went through where there were specific tools that helped you to get comfortable talking about your sex life and preferences openly and honestly? No, I think it's just practice. Mm -hmm. And I have always been someone who's been fascinated by gender and sexuality. And I've always had a very robust group of friends around me who represented a number of different gender identities and um, backgrounds and, um, we all enjoy talking about sex. So I, I basically attracted people that allowed me to practice. And if you don't have a community that is supportive of that, I mean, I know so many people who tell me as their coach, you know, this is something I wouldn't even ask my best friend, or this is something I wouldn't even Google, you know, to not even allow yourself that, that permission to investigate, like I get it, but also, there are people out there who are willing to talk and willing to help you practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that, you know, like anything else, it's practice, right? We want the answer to be something different, but that's the answer. But, you know, for potentially clients like the ones that you're mentioning, is there like, what's the starting point? Like for someone who, you know, doesn't have the robust group of friends that you have that's comfortable with this or who maybe didn't have, you know, such a sex positive role model or upbringing or doesn't even have the language. I feel like this is the kind of thing that's so easy to be deer in headlights about. Like, okay, yeah. I'm not talking about this. I don't know who to talk. What do I, uh, 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 you know, like that. I don't know. I just, I see that being something that would be really common. Yeah, that's why I'm here and why I do the work that I do. And what I've seen with my clients who are like that is that just the mere practice of coming to see me even once um, is is so enlightening because that is one of the things that I provide. It's not just working through um, an issue with a client. It's also providing this space that is free of judgment to allow that conversation to flow. And I try to elicit 
from my clients, you know, what is it that you really need to talk about? And, and how can we give you the tools to, and the words to describe what it is? So what happens in the room is great, but I find what happens outside of the room or the Skype session is even greater and has the greatest impact because from that, then I get to be the excuse that, and I love being the excuse for anyone talking about sex, for someone to say to their best friend, well, you know, I started seeing the sex coach and this is why. And then that friend has permission to say, oh my God, I've been struggling so much with my boyfriend, but I've had no one to talk to. I'm so glad we can have this conversation, just the two of us. What do you think? You know, what do you think the sex coach would say to me? You know? And so I love being that catalyst of that conversation. And I was doing that before I was a sex coach. So I was doing it within my friend groups, but I also started these sex salons in New York that I ran for a few months, uh, which were great opportunities for a group of strangers to get into a room together and just talk about sex. So I would present the topic and I'd facilitate the discussion, but it really was about letting people hear what other people have to say and to get into that practice of being like, this is okay. Mm -hmm. Now we had people there who didn't say anything the entire time they were there. And that was perfectly fine. Everybody could take what they needed because everyone's in a different place of being comfortable with this idea. Do you have, maybe this is a really silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Do you have a favorite like icebreaker, I don't even know if that's the right word, in a, in a group setting like that where you have a bunch of strangers and you're going to talk about sex together? I do. And it's going to make your listeners cringe. But it's something that I did in college as an exchange student. So I had a um, professor, Hurt Heckma, and he's a fantastic man and a wonderful professor. But on our first day of class, we had to go around the room, say our name and something sexual about ourselves. And if you've never done oh this... God. <laughs> That's amazing. If oh you've God. ever done this, it's, it is amazing. And I mean, I think this was very formative for me too. But um, getting people into that space of just thinking about themselves in a sexual way and communicating that externally in like one of the most usually mundane and tedious exercises of, you know, a class or a workshop that you go to and injecting that like eroticism into that. And then you learn so much about people. So I remember sharing that I had just been in Berlin visiting a friend and had sex with a guy in a band and it was, you know, it was great. (laughs) And then during our break, my professor was like, oh, you know, was that guy, was he American? Was he German? You know, and we had this like chit chat about me telling him that I had sex over the weekend in Berlin. So Yes, that's a it's a really fun exercise. I know it probably is striking terror in the hearts of many, but I love it. And and I've done it. I've used it since then. And I think it's really cool because you can say anything and I give people permission. Like you can say, I like kissing. You know, you don't have to reveal your deepest, darkest sexual fantasies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can also say I had sex with my husband last night cool. Awesome. Yeah. No, this is, this is amazing. It's, it's something that is seemingly simple, but it feels really powerful because the heart that or what I'm taking sort of from between the lines of what you're saying is that so much of the overarching umbrella issue is just the way that we have made this something that like 
only happens in sort of like metaphorical or literal dark corners, right? Like you can't talk about this. You can't, this isn't a part of polite conversation. Like this is something you're supposed to just keep to yourself and that this lack of openness around it and almost this putting it on kind of this weird pedestal, not even necessarily putting it on a pedestal in a good way, but in this thing that like we don't touch, we don't talk about this, that that is what leads to so many of these things. Because I think about, you know, And I also have an open group of friends where, you know, I I feel grateful that I could have, you know, and have had and do have lots of conversations about sex. But, you know, the same way that I would if I was had a problem with work or, you know, I wanted to talk to a fellow like podcasting colleague about like you just ask for help or you just talk about stuff. And why is this the the one thing? I know it's not the only thing. I feel like money is up there, too. But we just don't, you know, no, you can't bring it up. And so then you can't bring it up. You can't idea share. So much of I think what we learn about ourselves comes through just the process of talking things out with other people. Absolutely. And that's why the media representations that we have currently are so detrimental too, because we're constantly searching for ourselves outside, right? We're constantly looking for validation that the way that we think and feel internally about sex is, is correct. And when we don't see ourselves reflected back in media representations and what's around us through our community, it's incredibly isolating and it, it builds this big pile of shame. And the shame stuff is, is so hard to dismantle uh, after years and years and years and years. You feel shameful that like you think differently than what you see or what you think your friends are doing and what you see on TV represented back to you about like what desire looks like for women or for men. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, that's the reason why I started the podcast that I have down for whatever, because I wanted to share stories that people would go, oh, shit, that's that's me. Like, that's actually how I like things. Or that's, you know, more of a, a description of my life and my experience than I've ever heard before. And that's a lot of the feedback that I get. I mean, we talk about, you know, disability. We talk about uh, furry play and, like, BDSM. But we also talk about these very um, intense feelings that people have developed over the course of their lives and how they've had to work to get to a place of self-acceptance. And for some people, they're on some version or some some area of that journey. And just to hear that somebody else has done it is so inspiring. Mm-hmm. I mean, something in this isn't exclusively in a sexual context, but can definitely be applied there as well that I've been talking about with my therapist lately and is just getting to the place where I feel 100% okay to just have desires in general. Like it's okay to want stuff, which (laughs) as I say that, like I feel silly saying that because, well, of course it's okay to want stuff, but there's so much sort of cultural baggage underneath that to just be like, this is a thing that I desire and it's 100% okay that I desire it. It's okay that I ask for it. It's okay that I go, and obviously this can apply to, you know, money or friendship or sex or anything, but just even that it's, it's just funny to watch myself have a hard time with that. Absolutely. And to your point, I've spent so much of my life focusing in on the sexual aspect of that. Um, You know, it's okay for me to want certain things. And this year, 2017 was a big uh, wake up call for me around money stuff. Like I haven't done all the work that I could do around money. And this, this year was really putting energy into that. And I had that same process of just like, 
oh God, like there's a lot there that has been built up over time that I've been telling myself for what, you know, mm-hmm. like there's no, there's no real reason. And I have to say that the book, you are a badass at making money really helped me. It's funny, that, came, that came up on another episode this season. Yeah. I recently read that book as well. It helped me too. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. It was so good. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like the, the sort of cultural line that we're given about both money and sex when it comes to desire is that it's not okay to want it, right? It's mm-hmm. not okay to want more money. It's dirty to want a lot of money. It's, you know, bad to be really sexual, especially the way that we are often sexualized or taught about that as women or as young girls, you know, that that's like I said before, it's not ladylike. It's not okay to have this voracious sexual appetite. It is if you're if you are being used for that. Um, And this is something that comes up a lot in the client work that I have where, you know, that virgin whore dichotomy, it really is alive and well, even in, you know, this modern age where men will certainly respect a woman who is chaste but we'll use a woman who is sexually empowered, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, because they believe that there's something that's tied to her worth um, in the number of people she's had sex with. And there really isn't. I mean, there just isn't. I have to say that. And I hope that people who are feeling that there is can really hear me, but there's nothing that should be tied to your worth Uh, when it comes to how many people you've had sex with and how you feel about your body and how sexy you feel on a regular basis. um, That does not dictate how you should be treated in the world. And unfortunately, it it does happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like it's very similar to beauty standards, right? That there's in sexual standards, there's a very narrow window in which if you fall into that, okay, cool. And anything outside of that in either direction, you know, you lose a lot of privilege. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. 100. So sort of a pivot. Um, but I'm interested in this idea, what you mentioned before, I don't remember the exact words that you use, but like seeing yourself as a sexual being, I think you said, you know, that we're sexual beings from birth. And this idea of what am I trying to say, sort of, and I'm speaking from a female perspective, being able to get to the place where you value feeling sexy, not through a male gaze. Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. think like a figuring out what makes you feel sexy just as its own independent standalone thing, not even necessarily related to a partner or to anything else. Anything that you want to say about that? Yes. Um I think that using the very gendered example of motherhood is a good way to to frame this conversation. So um I do work with clients who are are new mothers, right? And the bulk of the responsibility of childcare is still largely on our shoulders in heterosexual partnerships. And there's this idea that motherhood in that role is so sacred, it trumps everything. You know, we're talking about women who have had really sexually adventurous lives prior to motherhood, who felt incredibly sexually empowered, and then zip, like it's been taken away. And part of accessing that in yourself and getting that back or getting it at all is actually tied to what you mentioned before about allowing yourself to want. So 
when you are so hyper-focused on other aspects of your life, there's no space for sexual energy to flow. And I do believe in that kind of (laughs) woo-woo. But it's also just like basic resource management, right? We're not, we don't have an endless supply of energy. And sexual energy is this kind of life force that's flowing through us all. But if we're really focusing that life energy elsewhere, we don't have time for the, the desire, So I see a lot of moms with low desire or just not feeling themselves, you know, like they're really sad because this is an aspect of their life that was so important. And my recommendation is, or actually a lot of my questioning, because first I'm like, are you the one doing all the work? Okay, let's start there. How about giving yourself a day off? How about connecting with the things that make you feel like you, not a mom, not like, um, You know, if this isn't the case for you, you're not a mom, but you're putting your whole life's energy into work right now. What are the things that make you feel like a woman who is sexy as fuck and desirable and interesting and funny? Like, who are the people you want to surround yourself with who make you feel like that? And what are the activities that you do just for yourself? So that comes down to like a lot of times with these new moms are like, I used to get my nails done all the time. Or like I used to go out with my girls for happy hour at least once a week. And if you're not giving yourself that, it doesn't sound like it's related, but it absolutely 100% is. Mm -hmm. If you're not giving yourself the opportunity to step outside of the roles that we obviously have to fill the majority of our days and to just be human. I mean, think about when we go on vacation, right? (laughs) We can be completely different people on vacation and we don't give ourselves permission to be that self, that free self many other times in our lives. So it's looking for opportunities to tap into that vacation energy or that day off energy or that I'm going to treat myself energy and trying to build that into your day to day life. Mm -hmm. It will make it will make a huge difference. Something that just popped into my head when you were talking, and I don't know if this is true or not true, but um, thinking about vacation energy, right? There's something really playful there and, you know, Mm -hmm. free of responsibilities and productivity and all the things that we might associate with our, you know, quote, regular normal lives at home or the things we're taught to value in our (laughs) capitalist society Mm -hmm. that... I wonder how much of, because this sort of brain training around sex, like it it doesn't really seem like that it's a necessity, right? Or that it's seen as, I don't know, like not as important as those other things or not as valued as as those other things that it's easier to tap into that when you are in like a physical geographic different space where you don't have all of those, you know, supposedly more important things going on. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm nodding my head vigorously. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we don't prioritize uh, sex the way that we prioritize productivity and success and accomplishment. We even try to make sex into something like that by saying, you know, I didn't achieve orgasm. I didn't, you know, he didn't give me this. There's a transactional nature to sexuality that we put on our sex life, which is free. It is you know, we're, like I said, we're born with it. It is free. It is energetically something that is a part of us for the duration of our lives, you know, to, to, to a certain extent at different parts of our life. Right. But it is, it is there, it is ever present. And, you know, you mentioned capitalist society. And I just have to say that if you look at history as a whole, and we're talking about forms of domination and control of, of people, 
and um, and civilizations, one of the easiest ways to do that is to try to control people's sexual expression. Um, when you take that away from people, when you when you start to impose ways in which they can be sexual and can't be sexual, it it works wonders on the psyche. And it's it's so when we are, I mean, we're, it sounds crazy, but like for a lot of us, we're like cr- creating that prison for ourselves. And mm-hmm. uh, we don't need a higher power to tell us that this is, you know, because we're doing it. We're saying, no, this isn't important. This isn't as important. This type of connection isn't important as um, my job or my kids or, but it's so connected to our very being that it's, it's inextricable. Like it's not, it, it's something that is, if we can reframe it for ourselves, so powerful. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this work is that I believe in the power of it. And people also acknowledge the power of sex. We just don't know what to do with that power. We mm-hmm. think of it as a dangerous power, something to be controlled. Whereas I think of it as this is the life force. It is beautiful. It is magnificent. It should be shared. It should be part of our daily expressions of ourselves, like our true, true selves. Yeah, I've been thinking also just about maybe damaging perspectives on sex or things that I don't even necessarily know that I was taught in terms of someone sat me down and said it, but obviously we're taught lots of things subconsciously through media, through our just general culture, right? And the messaging that we get. I feel like with sex, the one that keeps coming up for me when I think about this is that I was definitely taught from, like I said, that all those different places, that sex is something that, you know, when you're with the right person and you're in this relationship, that it's just super easy and it happens. And that's maybe why no one has to talk about it because it's just like always easy and magical and you don't have to put any work into it or anything. Like, again, it's kind of on this pedestal. And then to find out, I know that I'm not alone here. I've had this conversation with other people that that's definitely not always the case. And then you feel like, well, something's wrong with me that sex is not just happening, right? Like as unsexy as it sounds for for my husband and I scheduling sex has worked incredibly well. And like, even saying that makes me feel like, you know, my younger self or, you know, when I was 20 or 23 or whatever that I, my vision of what it was to be married and to be in that sexual relationship was that it would just, you find the right person. And it's just this magical Disney princess, you know, sparkly, everyone wants it all the time or the same amount of time situation. And to find out that that is not the case has been like a a rude awakening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a rude awakening for a lot of people. And I wish that the, the information was out there enough that when people do hit that recognition of, oh, you know, this isn't as easy as it used to be. And, you know, our lives are kind of chaotic. So it's hard to create the time that there's just there, there would be a cultural um, knowledge that you could schedule sex and you wouldn't have any guilt around that. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I know a lot of people and a lot of my clients, I recommend that, that they schedule sex in based on their lifestyle and where they are in their relationship. Not only because, it's hard to find time. Um, but it also is, it works wonders in building anticipation and expectation. And sometimes if you've got a week or two weeks lead up, if someone's on like a business trip or something, you can play around with that and you can cultivate that sexual energy. That's then going to be used in your session with one another in the near future, Mm -hmm. which I think is fantastic and wonderful. And what a lovely like way to re spark things. 
and to even spark that something in your in the middle of your day when you get like a sexy text from your spouse like how often does that happen really right. yeah i mean i feel like it's so counterproductive when we make one element of our lives like so separate that it's supposed to play by different rules. Like anything else that's important to me, I'm making time for it. I'm scheduling it. I'm thinking about it. I'm preparing for, you know, whatever that, that might look different. You know, if I'm training for a marathon versus something totally different, but those things just don't magically happen. I would never assume I'm just going to wake up one day and run a marathon, right? Or, right. or you just wake up and you've written a whole book. Like, no, that's <laughs> not like the, and so like the rules all make total sense in other areas of our lives, but sex is supposed to be this like, this thing that plays by totally different rules. Yeah. I talk to people about this a lot too. I love this food analogy of, you know, no one would ever eat if we just assumed we knew what our partner wanted for dinner every night, you know, like Mm -hmm. it would be, it would just be like a disaster. Just, you know, fights here and there. And, and yet we, we don't have these conversations of, you know, well, what do you want to do? Okay, well, I'm not in the mood for that, but I'm in the mood for this. You know, how can we meet in the middle? We There's a lot of aspects of sexuality that we don't use the same tools that we use in our other, other aspects of our lives to like apply to sex. Instead, if someone is like, oh, well, I'm not really feeling that tonight, um, that's where the conversation ends. Well, yeah, and then that feels like this rejection that terrible. then they're not going to ask again. It's We've put so much stuff on it, to your point from before, that it's anything but like talking about the weather. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. exactly, yes. So I'm really interested in getting more specific on some things and uh, obviously, you know, keeping, of course, all of your clients' privacy in mind. Can you give me an example of some of like the, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but homework assignments that you give people? Sure, I tell women to masturbate all the time. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Love it. (laughs) Um, And not just to masturbate the way that they're used to masturbating, um, but to have hand to skin contact, to feel around for areas of different sensitivity levels, to take notes, to give feedback. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big one because I have a lot of female clients for whom this this very topic is it's difficult of like understanding what it is that they like and then telling a partner mm-hmm. you know the reason that they don't understand what they like is because women have been socialized to receive whatever a man gives them as good or not so great but don't tell him that because male egos are fragile oh, you know oh my god this okay so that brings up something else I mean I want to get back to the homework assignment thing but that. <laughs> About um, just the the prevalence of women faking orgasms. Yes. Jeez, that's yeah. a, I assume that's something that comes up. <laughs> Talk to me about that. <laughs> you know what? It really hasn't come up. Really? Well, okay. No. What I find more is that women are, aren't having them and are not saying anything. Okay. So that's a big trend in my work, that women are dissatisfied with the type of stimulation they're getting. Maybe they're not putting that together, you know, that it is stimulation uh, dependent, but they're not having orgasms. That's all they know. And they're frustrated and their partner feels terrible because we've also been conditioned to believe that sex is, you know, a wet vagina, a hard cock. They meet in a room. It's amazing fireworks and both people come at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) Right. And, and that you just naturally have all of those skills. 
like to make yeah. that happen for your partner. That that's another thing right. because we we don't talk about this. We don't like again going back to you know if I want to write a book or if I want to learn to speak Italian, I don't just think that's going to happen because I want it. I have to learn how to speak Italian, right? Like, yes. And yet this is a thing where I feel like it's not okay to pursue or to need skill development. Yeah. And when, okay, I've used this analogy too in the past of like, you know, someone being expected to learn to, to know calculus when they haven't had any foundational math training at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that sex is as complicated as, (laughs) as math (coughs) can be, but what I'm saying is we somehow have created a situation where if one aspect of our sex life isn't working, this is more true, I'd say, for heterosexual couples where, you know, the, the, the male partner person, like, internalizes this as a failing on his, his part sure. rather than, you know, inquiring, exploring, discovering, building up knowledge with, her, with his partner, and in some ways, they need to be learning those foundational things about themselves and each other together, getting those like foundational math skills built. But it's, it's like we, we really want people to just know. And then when they don't know, it's personal. Mm-hmm. It's so deeply personal. And that's where a lot of pain comes in and a lot of big blocks come up with the communication because it's, it's a, now it's not about well, we just weren't taught this. Like, we don't know. Like, or, you know, you're a new partner to me. I've been doing things this way for 10 years and I haven't had any feedback and every woman has come, or at least I thought so. And now you're telling me that you don't. So I must be fucking up. Mm-hmm. How does that make sense? You know? Um, and it's not productive. It's just not productive. Yeah. And to what you said about that, taking it really personally, I feel like that's even more true in the instances when it brushes up against what we've been told our gender or sexuality role is, should be, or should look like, right? That this, you mentioned, you know, that the, we're told, you know, the fragile male ego. And it's the, it's again, obviously we're talking about, uh, as you said, a heterosexual relationship that it's, you know, the woman's job to please and accept and to make happy. And it's the man's job to have this huge sexual appetite. And what happens if those roles are reversed? Okay. Then as Mm -hmm. a woman, do you feel shame that you want sex more often than your partner? If you know, the women that you were mentioning that aren't having orgasms and their partner feels like this is a, a failing in terms of something that they should just be good at in their masculinity. There's just like so much there. Yeah, there is a lot. And that's why I love, I love discussions of gender. And one of the things that has come up for me in my work too, is I've noticed that regardless of, because I'm a feminist, I mean, regardless of who is expressing the quote unquote feminine traits in the relationship, I, I tend to gravitate towards that person in terms of empowerment, you know, whether it is um, the male partner, the female partner, if it's a same sex couple, if it's a different gender, um, you know, my role is to empower the feminine and to understand that the feminine holds more power than has been traditionally given Mm -hmm. to that role. Mm -hmm. Um, and to uplift the feminine and show the value of the feminine perspective, because I do think that it has been so devalued that, it's very easy for that partner who's expressing those 
those um, those traits as like the gatekeeper of sex and the one who's supposed to be more demure, who's you know expressing that they're a little bit more passive in the relationship. Like there is power in passivity. Anybody who's dated somebody who's passive knows that. <laughs> um, but there's also like this delicate balance between, you know, what are we expecting of this feminine role and what are we expecting of this masculine role and how can we manipulate those definitions so that there's more equality in the bedroom and more of a, a an easier power exchange. Mm-hmm. Well, this topic of feminism and sex is one that I know that you mentioned wanting to to talk about um, before yeah. we started recording, I, and specifically answering the question of what female sexual empowerment is, what it looks like today. I would love for you to get specific on that. I mean, tell me everything. I'm so interested. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my work with women, what I've noticed is that you know we've we've all made incredible strides to be professionally successful, um, educationally, we actually surpass men in terms of achievement, in terms of like graduate level education and going on, you know, we've, we've done so much. And yet, just like we've been talking about this area of sexuality has sort of been left behind on an individual level. I'm not saying that we're not having the right conversations or we're not bringing things to light, but I think on an individual level, what I see with my clients is that, there's still this this guilt about wanting pleasure, about wanting to be wanted, about wanting to be sexual and to do that in a way that feels authentic to their expression. And by that, I mean, I, I definitely work with women who identify as like feminists, but are also submissive or, um, or, or dominant. And they struggle with that, you know, that, that there is something inherently wrong. And yeah. So, so the empowerment that I, I hope to achieve with my client work is giving a space to give voice to what those desires are, or giving a space to even explore what those desires might be if my clients don't know, and then helping them to find partners if they don't have one, um, who are going to support them on that journey and to uplift them and to allow them that pressure, that, that pleasure. Mm -hmm. Because the other thing too, is that like, we can be with feminist dudes who don't let us have our pleasure because they're so indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it is, it's this real area of our lives that seems to be an exception or it's just harder to undo what's been done. And it's harder to get to the root of this is okay. And I'm a woman and I want to fuck who I want to fuck, how I want to fuck them. And there should be nothing said about that by anybody who's not involved. You know, <laughs> I would love for that to be how every woman felt. Uh, I love that. That's <laughs> just like moment of silence in honor of that. Um, in your own sexual life, what have you had to unlearn? Ooh, I, you know, I've actually had to unlearn some of these things myself. For instance, this is a new one on me, but I, and it's not so new, but the way it plays out in my life now is different. And, um, so I, I feel that consent should be an aspect of long-term partnership. I believe that what happens in long-term partnerships is you get so familiar with someone else and their body 
that there becomes an expectation that you have access to that body whenever you want and however you want. I think this is something that culturally should be shifting in the future. And I think with the conversation that's happening around consent and sexual assault, I'm not even talking about assault here within relationships. I'm talking about, you know, maybe I'm washing dishes and don't want you to grab my ass while I'm doing that because that's not what I want. Mm -hmm. So it's tricky because there's some level of um, spontaneity that you want to foster within a trusting, loving relationship. But then there's also these aspects of, but I don't want you to get the idea that my body is your body. Right. Like maintaining that sovereign separateness. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a great phrase to use. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one thing that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of it playing out in my future relationships. So uh, I guess just maybe digging into that a little bit, because everything that you just said makes complete sense to me. And I, I agree with you. And I, and also how does that actually look then? Right? Like, Do you have any specific examples of what consent the way that you're talking about in a long-term relationship like that would look like? Sure. Yeah. I think it's the same as it would look in a dating capacity where, you know, more times than not, there is a discussion about when sex is had and how it's had and permission for both parties to negotiate when and how that sex is had. So, you know, asking for sex is great. And then hearing no and respectfully understanding that is wonderful and rarely happens <laughs> because of that sense of entitlement that we have with our partners. And, you know, and it goes both ways. I'm not, I'm not saying that men are more likely to do this than women because certainly it can go both ways. Um, but yeah, so, so asking would you like to have sex with me today? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, <laughs> funny. It sounds so. It sounds so silly, but it's the simple things are often like sometimes the toughest and the most powerful for sure. It's something that I've been working on personally, or I guess personally, and in the context of of my relationship is you know, let's say that question is asked, right? And let's say I'm the one who asks it and the answer is no, for whatever reason, my partner doesn't want to have sex. It's not about me. Like, I don't have to turn it into this, like, something's wrong with me. I'm not sexy. They're not attracted, you know, because again, we're told that like men always want sex, right? Or so, and not to internalize it into this personal, like the answer can just be no, like the same way that my answer sometimes no. Yes. And it may not land very well with you or your partner, but in the consent community, a, a very stock answer to a no is thank you for taking care of yourself. Hmm. Because it's an acknowledgement that no is not easy to say either, but that that no is protective of what it is that they want to do at that moment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having a having something kind of in your back pocket to say as a response to no instead of, okay, and then walking away and fuming for the rest of the night, you know, is helpful is, you know, it allows you to really acknowledge that other person's no, which I think that's, that's a cultural conversation that is happening that needs to be a little bit like that dial needs to be turned up a little bit, I think of like, we really need to not only hear no, but we need to respect no. Yeah. Right. And not just pretend that we do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that also makes me think what you were saying before about giving, um, especially women, the the homework to masturbate and masturbate more often. Mm-hmm. I think that 
there's an, if we're talking about other things to necessarily unlearn or things that we were taught, I feel like a lot of what I was taught is that sex is only and always a partnered thing. And so yeah. if you're not having partnered sex, or if you do hear that, no, or that that shuts down all sort of erotic expression and right. being open to, okay, so I'm not having sex with my partner, but that doesn't mean that, you know, my sexual life energy valve, whatever we're going to get, you know, is like shut off. Like it's sort of mm-hmm. broadening that perspective, I feel like can also be really helpful. Absolutely. And there should be this, again, area of negotiation, which we don't have, you know, we just shut down so, so quickly and the conversation shuts down. So there is no possibility um, for negotiation or, okay, well, you know, I'm going to masturbate. I'm really feeling it right now. Like you can stay here and watch. Maybe you'll be inspired. You can leave, you know, and for me too, I've heard from men and women that in long-term partnered relationships where they're not allowed to masturbate as they used to, I mean, your primary sexual relationship is with yourself. So like from birth, that's like you are your own sexual partner. (laughs) Um, So when that is not uh, allowed or it's frowned upon in your home, there can be feelings of loss because it's, it's a way to connect to yourself, to your own sexual energy, to, um, the person that you are without your partner. You know, you can maybe allow yourself a little fantasy where they're not involved and there's no one harmed in that. Um, and when that's taken away from you, you, you really get cut off from it, an aspect of your sexuality that it can be pretty Mm -hmm. sad, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Not to mention frustrating because totally. you're at the whim of someone else. Yeah, absolutely. This thing that's so important is like dependent on someone else's yeah mood yeah. and feelings. Um, do you have any ideas or tips? I hate sort of the like tips and tricks thing, but yeah. I'm going to ask anyway. Um, for, and this is, uh, I, I feel like would be one of the most common questions when I told some of the members of the community that you and I were going to be talking, you know, I said, hey, what do you want me to ask her? What do you want to talk about? And one of the things that came up um, from a couple of different people was sort of ideas for keeping sex life hot, enjoyable, whatever, while in a long-term relationship. Um, and is there, and I know we talked about scheduling sex, that kind of thing, but is there anything else that you find comes up that works well? Yes. And that is to be curious to be constantly curious about your partner's inner sex life and desires. I think that most of us find what works and then stick with it. Like we just can't do anything else. (laughs) And it's because it's easy, right? But sex doesn't like easy. Sexual energy is not drawn towards the predictable. It's drawn towards, um, excitement. And the reason why you can have scheduling sex be still exciting is the buildup, you know? Mm -hmm. So having conversations with your partner regularly about what it is that they'd like to try sexually, very helpful. Um, Actually doing those things, really great. Figuring out how to implement uh, different positions or incorporating toys. Um, There's so many fun things that you can do that you know, it's funny because I predominantly work with, with straight couples, but there are non, like there are couples that I work with that don't identify that way. And there, there's this kind of category of sex acts that I would consider to be like straight sex. 
But, like, you don't have to have straight sex with your partner in a straight relationship. You know what I mean? Like, there are things that you can do. I know what you mean, but I want you to give me examples. When you say things that fall into straight sex, what do you mean? Okay, so we're talking about female, like, strap-on usage, you know, topping or what's called pegging your partner in the ass. Like, that, it would be considered, like, not a super straight, quote-unquote, thing, even though straight couples do it. And I think that there's this world outside of... Um, the Kama Sutra and, you know, 61 positions to drive your man crazy. Um, I totally should have said 69 positions. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's, it's funny, because we are, we are limited by our cultural view. And there's so many things, there are as many ways to have sex, as there are human beings on the planet. Mm -hmm. That's my belief, you know, (laughs) and by asking those questions of your partner, and, you know, this is like, one of the most beautiful things about being so intimate with someone and so close to them is that you can never know exactly what's in there, like what's behind there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But every once in a while, you might be able to glean something super fun and interesting by asking the right question, by asking, you know, is there ever something you ever wanted to try with a partner, but never got to? Is there ever, you know, is there a fantasy that you've had recently or like way back in your past that you never got to realize and is there a way that we can make that happen for you or man I had this crazy dream that was super hot and you know this element was there and that one was there do you think we could maybe try that sometime you know like how often those conversations really happen in long-term partnerships not 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 often yeah Mm -hmm. because we assume that what we've been getting is all we can get Yeah, I also think or I I wonder if part of the issue is we're afraid of being seen differently or, you know, because if you have this this long term partnership and and it's a a happy one or one that you want to continue being in, you'd assume that you care a lot about what that person thinks of you and you have a sort of status quo in other areas of your life that works, but like you found a way to be in this really companionable relationship, right? And if all of a sudden, you know, this thing that you've been doing, if you've been doing it all this one way or not having these conversations or having the very straight sex or whatever, and then, you know, want to sort of take a left turn from that, that there's a fear or can be a fear of, okay, but how's that going to play out? Like, are they going to respect me less? Are they like, is it going to shake the boat essentially? Mm -hmm. And this is when our conversation earlier about how we treat sex differently than other aspects of our life comes really into play because throughout the course of a relationship, there are so many things that will come out and emerge um, about our lives, our inner lives and, you know, our familial lives that will impact the relationship. And yes, there have been cases when someone's parent becomes very ill and the way that that is handled by one partner or the other will dramatically change the relationship. And one partner will think of the other one differently. Oh my God, I can't believe you treated your mother like this. There are countless aspects of our relationships that are subject to change and in their changing will change how our partners feel and think about us. And yet sex is one of those things that is just like, "Hmm, well, guess this is what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have always wanted to live out this fantasy, but you know, if I tell this person, that's just, that'll be it. You know, I don't know. Like, it could be it could be that or it could be the thing that changes 
your relationship in this critical way to take you deeper and farther than you ever thought you could go. Yeah, I love that perspective because I also think in long-term relationships, I mean, of any kind, even if we take it out of the sex context, there's... uh it's really easy to assume that you know what the other person is thinking or is going to say, and then you don't even have the conversation. Oh, I know how that would yeah. go. But they're yeah. a separate person, like back to that sovereign separateness, right? That you might think that you know what your partner's going to say, but you don't actually. <laughs> you you know? don't. You don't until you have the conversation. And this is another thing that obviously like therapists, they work with couples on this a lot of just like, you don't know, you know, you've set up in your mind because this is, you know, and it's very logical. It's how we get through life of categorizing certain behaviors and saying, okay, I attribute um, stubbornness to my partner. So if I want him to budge on this, that, and the other, I know that he's not going to budge, but I know that he has a soft spot in this area so I can get him there. You know, like we are very logical and we understand and we can take in information and, and work with that because that's, that's how we've survived <laughs> like mm-hmm. millennia. But, you know, it, it's really important to understand that that is only the tip of the iceberg. It, it would be horrible if you turned that on yourself and, say, and said, over the last 10 years, yes, I've said no to X amount of things, but I've said yes to all of these other things. So, why do I get categorized as someone who's always a naysayer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sure. Um, and it's hard. Like these are things that help us survive and thrive in our relationships, but they can also be a hindrance. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Do you have any either favorite questions to ask clients to help get to the heart of what's true, or questions that you love? giving to them for them to ask their partners? Like just, I'm curious about good questions or things that you have helped or that you think help people get to the heart of what's true, whether that's what's true for their desires or to just cut through essentially like a lot of this conditioning and, you know, tough nonsense that we've been talking about. That's a very good question. Um, I love acknowledging my client's physicality. And by that, I mean, when they talk about something, when they talk about a problem, acknowledging that I see that there's a spark in their eye when they get to, you know, talking about a fantasy that they have and picking out those moments and saying, you know, what's behind that? I mean, that's actually like one of, I think one of my favorite phrases, you know, because there's, there are certain things for which we don't have the words as we've been talking about. And recognizing when someone's physicality changes, when they brighten, then I can go deeper with them and say, what's behind that? You know, you just got really excited Mm -hmm. talking, talking about this upcoming vacation that you're going to go on, you know, oh, well, there's this guy there and I've been talking to him online. You know what I mean? Like all of those things you can see in a person, Um, you can see them light up or you can see them capitulate and completely, you know, just, you can see the pain sometimes that they're experiencing. Or sometimes they'll be like, well, the sex was just meh. And I'm like, well, meh, you know, like what's behind meh? What is meh to you? And those are the types of questions that I find are really illuminating. I am an intuitive person. So a lot of my questions sometimes come from I don't know where they come from. So I just try to stay really present Mm -hmm. and 
I might say, you know, like, I feel like you, you know, you should journal about this. And someone might say, I've been keeping a journal for the last 10 years of my life. That's, you know, and not everybody is a big journaler, right? Um, so sometimes things will come to me and I'll make recommendations or I'll ask questions that just kind of come to me based on what I'm getting from my client in the room. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and in terms of questions that I have my clients ask their partners or, you know, things that I help, I think are helpful for them in their day-to-day lives to ask either themselves or their partners, <clears throat> excuse me, it's less of, well, I guess there's one question, which is the, you know, what would you want from this experience or what are you wanting from our sexual experiences together? I think that's a really good question to ask someone else. Um, because especially if you know what your answer would be, it's not an easy question to ask someone if you're not prepared to say, well, this is, you know, what I, I am thinking or I want, um, but it also shouldn't be asked when you want to just tell that person what you want to tell them. Because sometimes that can happen with sexual questions in particular, like, oh, is there anything that you want to (laughs) do? And Mm -hmm. it's really just about the thing that they want to do. Um, so really sitting down and asking someone or having that conversation of, you know, I want to know like where you want to take our sexual relationship. And that could be useful at the beginning of a relationship in the middle, when you're having a problem, when you're not having any sex at all, you know, when things, when things are really good, it's a great question to ask when things are going really well. Um, to, to, to know, like, where could this go? What are Mm -hmm. the possibilities that you've been thinking about for us? Um, so that's, that's one thing, but most of all, I, I think I give my clients more tools to have tough conversations and those are less about them asking and more about them telling their story and their needs and their wants. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, which is so scary because at the end of the day, like we all, we want to be liked. We want to know that we're okay. You know, we don't want to say something, especially something that feels deeply personal and then to feel like it's rejected. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And rejection is painful, but it's often a gift. Um, I say to my clients and I say this a lot in life that your truth is your filter So if you can tap into what's true for you and feel confident saying it, you're going to weed out people who don't believe in your truth. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. (laughs) I think sometimes (laughs) scarier when it's someone that you're in maybe like a long-term partnership with, but yeah, Yeah. no, I, I hear you completely, I guess not complete pivot because we're still in the arena of sex, but do you have a favorite sex toy? Hmm, I do. And it's currently broken. It's really sad. (laughs) (laughs) It's also, um, it is also like not being made anymore. So I don't even know if I should tell people. Go for it. Um, shoot. Oh, it's called the revel body. And the thing that I like about it is that it is, it's like a, an orb. It's like kind of like a, a ball. And so it fits in the palm of your hand. For me, um, I was finding that using wands or using like dildo style sex toys was, um, it would hurt my wrist after a while. I don't know if anybody else has this problem, but um, with the the ball shape, it's more ergonomic. And I tend to gravitate towards toys that are easily 
held, handheld. Mm-hmm. Um, that just works really well for me. Plus the motor in it, it's fantastic. Um, and it's, it's just a weird design. It does not look like a sex toy at all. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm a very aesthetic person and I like well-designed products or things that don't look like a penis. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> Is there a particular, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be sex toys, but in this space, a, a company that you like or like a resource places to, that you like to shop? Mm, yeah. Well, I really love Smitten Kitten and they're mm-hmm. Minneapolis based. I love them because they do a lot of work around inclusivity and having toys for everyone. I think that might be their tagline is like sex toys for everybody. Um, so they're very body positive and inclusive and knowledgeable in this space. Um, they also tend to buy toys for the store that are, um, that are ethically, ethically made, um, as much as they can. And they support like smaller companies, um, but I think they're a great resource. And then in terms of sexual wellness products, I really love what Sustain is doing because they are also on the natural tip. So they're making um, latex condoms and lubricants that are free of chemicals. Mm, okay. It's super important considering that most of the stuff that you find in drugstores is going to have all of that shit in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my mind just went blank. I was like, I have so many questions. What do I ask you next? Um, <laughs> if you, so we, we talked about, um, sort of sometimes the, the damaging messages or education or lack thereof that we can get, especially when we're younger, if you were in charge of sexual education for our country, huge job, <laughs> what's something that you would teach? Like, what, what do you wish that we were talking more about, especially to young people? Mm -hmm. There is a movement now for pleasure education um, within sex education. And I think this is huge. I, I do believe that pleasure is political. I believe that um, people being denied pleasure for many different reasons is, is a form of control. (laughs) And, and I think that people who are teaching us about, diseases and all the things that can go wrong are robbing us of this great pleasure that all of us are given at birth. Mm -hmm. So yes, I would, I would advocate for a pleasure based comprehensive sex ed program and I would have it be government funded. I would have it be mandated and I would hopefully be able to enlist my growing community of sex educators, coaches, therapists, tantricas, <laughs> everybody to just be like all hands on deck, y'all. Like, let's get in here and make a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, that phrase that you, that you just said, pleasure is political. I've never heard that or thought of it that way, but that strikes me as just inherently so true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did this workshop um, at the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit uh, this year, that and that was the title of my presentation was pleasure is political. Um, or yeah. Yeah. So it was based on work by Beth Pickens, who she created this framework for artists, um, to examine their work in light of fascism. So, um, it, it's this radical idea that like art is something that we all need 
And we need it more in times of political struggle. And I believe that about sex. And I think, you know, we've, we've heard and maybe even experienced a decrease or a disintegration of our sexual energy in light of everything that's happened since this current president mm-hmm. has been in office. And to me, it's a, it's a travesty. Like we're being robbed of our, we're being robbed of our pleasure. And it's, it's a big deal to me. It's like, this is, this is my life's work. Yeah. I mean, it sort of goes hand in hand with something that I have heard before of this idea that joy is resistance mm-hmm. and that like that this, this idea of pleasure and sexual energy that can be such a strong fortifying thing that I would imagine, especially in light of, you know, tumultuous, dangerous, dangerous, scary times, you know, politically in the world, that that becomes even more important and is often one of the first things to go. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when, when you think about the, the way you are, when you are, sexually satisfied, whatever that means to you, and the way that you are able to go through the world, there's a marked difference between that and when you are sexually dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. So when we think about what, what do we need to bring to the table in terms of energy, and we're having this big conversation about self care, like sex as self care is really important, because that's the energy, that's the glow, that's like, that's the the stuff we need on the front lines. You know what I mean? Like, I would like everybody who is in on this fight with me to be as sexually satisfied as possible. (laughs) Oh, my God, this is the best thing I've ever heard. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I love everything that you're saying. I've been thinking this is slightly a different context. But um, I have some big creative goals for next year. And I've been thinking about, you know, times in my life when I was you know, most creative, most prolific, doing what I felt like was my best work, sort of trying to reverse engineer, okay, what were those conditions? Like, what does it take in order for me to do my best work? And as I guess, probably to you, not surprising as it might sound, this space of sexual energy or being turned on or being just like really awake and and mindful of that, for whatever reason, I feel like is very tied into good work for me. Mm hmm. And that's the thing. I mean, I was talking about this earlier, and I'm, I'm sure to some of your your audience, I sounded like a conspiracy theorist, but like that's what that is what people know from the top, not necessarily our top, but maybe you know, like people know that when you rob people of their sense of sexual self, that you're really taking you're taking away a very very powerful energy from them. You're taking. Um, you're taking life force, you're taking spirit, like whatever you want to call it. But when you're controlling that, when you're regulating that, when you're law, you know, uh, sorry, implementing laws around someone's sexual expression, like that's what that is meant for. Mm. That that's control. And that is, you know, the, the opposite of that is, is celebrating that. And, and for anybody who's doing political work, like, give yourself that time and that space to cultivate that sexual energy because it is also creative energy. It is the, the biggest creative energy potentially. Um, so yeah, this is, someone might think that what I do is, is frivolous. And, um, to them, I say, like, I feel every day that I'm working with clients that I'm changing lives. Mm -hmm. No, it makes complete sense to me. I I feel like nothing. Yeah, I see how again, on the surface, anyone who would think it's frivolous, it's because of how the ideas that we're indoctrinated with about the role that's uh, like, uh, the of what sex is. Yeah, you know, but I think nothing could be further from the truth. (laughs) Yeah. And the biggest barrier is just that, you know, the biggest barrier for for people to to come see me is just that feeling of, you know, what does it mean if I pay someone to help me with this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and that's, that's, that's also, yeah, a mark of like our, 
our culture and just how devalued this experience is that is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, homework assignments, sex as self-care, more masturbation. (laughs) I love it. Um, Is there, before we start to wrap up, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to talk about? I know you mentioned lightly before that you also coach people on dating things, specifically online dating stuff. Was there something in there you wanted to talk about maybe? I just want to say this has been a pleasure. This has been such a good conversation. So I'm very comfortable moving in the direction that you would like to go because you've been doing a fantastic job. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I guess, yeah, I will ask you a question about that because I I think that that's interesting too when you were saying helping people right there. Like, uh, so, okay, with online dating, I've never done online dating. Um, Mm -hmm. Just my sort of series of one long-term relationship to another. And then I got married. I somehow missed, I mean, I'm the age for it, right? I have plenty of peers that do it. I'm 32, but I just missed that. I've never used any of the apps or any of the anything, but I can imagine that being, especially for me as a writer, you know, figuring out how to articulate, you know, not only what you want from online dating, but then how to actually write about it in a way that like attracts the best possible people that it's like fascinating to me. Absolutely. And it's fascinating to me too. It's fascinating to work with people who are amazing because all of my clients are amazing and to see what kinds of mental roadblocks they've put up for themselves around this process, because it is really hard. And it, and it's also something that people feel, you know, you as a writer have an editor, you know, and as if you're writing your online profile, maybe you don't have an editor, you don't feel comfortable giving your personal life over to somebody else to edit and tweak. So that's where I think this work is really cool because I am, I get to be that editor and I get to say, you know, why did you choose that language or why did you repeat this particular thing? Is this important to you or did you just forget that you mentioned it in this other section? You know? Um, so it's kind of fun to, to run through that with people and to also see that for the most part, and I think so far, I've only had female identified dating coaching clients. And so one thing that I can say is this is a trend that I noticed even before formally formally offering this as a service, even with my friends who I did share my online dating profile with and I I wanted to edit other people's. Um, Women tend to not put out into the world what they're really good at and what they love and what they expect, Hmm. you know, it's, it's hard for them to conceptualize that in terms of the profile, because it's all about the cell, right? I'm so great. My friends are awesome. I'm pretty look at this picture, you know, like all these things, but there's not like, I am successful. I kick ass. My life is perfect without you. (laughs) But also, I am expecting someone to be a partner, to be a champion of of who I am, to, you know, is interested in these same things as I am and and set up to go on this journey for me, you know, with me. There's also this hesitancy to put in a profile, even for women who are in their 30s, I'm in my mid-30s, to say that they want a family. And at that point, I'm like, if you're not saying that, then you run the risk of attracting people who aren't along for that ride with you. Mm-hmm. It's like what you said about truth being a filter, right? That yeah. But I, and I think it, I wonder how much of this too comes down to socialization because the things that I was thinking when you, as you were talking about that, is you know, were 
or I guess we, I, I feel like I was taught that uh, my value goes up the more that men, I don't even know who, just like men in general, like want me, right? There's like some sort of like, you want to win by having people pick you. You're special if someone wants you to be their girlfriend. Like, and to actually stop and be like, do I even want this person to be my partner in the first place, right? That's like, I look at relationships that I was in in the past or that I stayed in for way too long because I don't know, I wanted this social status of being like, quote, special, like being picked by someone. And none of this was conscious. This is all like retroactive self-work. But there's just like something in that that I would imagine would change how you put together a profile if your goal is make as many people want me as possible versus actually find the right fit partner. Yes. And I actually tell women, this may decrease the number of people who message you. We're going to make these changes. And the idea is not to have the quantity of, hey, sup, you know, looking good, <laughs> oh, like God. messages. It's to hopefully decrease those altogether. Yeah, because you have not, shit to do. No one has time to mess, deal with those right. messages. <laughs> but I'm not a magician. I can't stop dudes right. who want to do that from doing that. Um, they're on their own journey. So, but I do tell them that like. Are they? <laughs> they're, they're doing something. They're on a journey, right? We don't know where it's going. They're not doing what I would like them to do. But um, no, they should, they should actually work with me too. Yeah. Um, so I don't think any of them are listening to this, but. <laughs> This is not your place to pick up the, hey, sup, dudes, but yeah. <laughs> Probably a good thing, actually. But yeah, so I mean, the idea is you you perhaps decrease the quantity, but hopefully you are increasing the quality of people that see you for who you who you really are, or at least how you want to portray yourself. And that's not a, that's not based on how you think people want you to be, but it's real information about you and your life and your quirkiness and your sense of humor and the people that you choose to surround yourself with. It's hopefully full of those things and not so much of a, see, look, like I'm, I'm one of the good ones. I'm going to be really easy as a mm -hmm. girlfriend and oh it's God. all going to be perfect, you know? And not to say that like all my clients do that. I think they've all been very aware of those kinds of trappings as well. But yeah. I think this is a general trend that I've seen in my life. And one of the things that I hope I can help people to, to overcome. Yeah. I mean, my whole life changed when I stopped trying to be the cool girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> girl. Preach. I know. Oh man. Okay. So before I ask you our little ending rapid fire question round for people who are listening and are interested in this, interested in the potential of working with you, but are still feeling kind of like, what would that entail? And would this have to be, you know, a, a super long-term commitment? And is this even the right fit for me? Anything that you want to say about who you're, you would be really excited to work with and who would be the right fit for you? Yeah. I mean, it's been amazing for me to see how quickly people can transform working with me. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I'm trying to say that, you know, this doesn't have to be like therapy. In fact, when I got into coaching, it was very clear to me that people were not going to necessarily work with me for years and years and years. So that means that, um, you know, I, I get to work with a large variety of people. I get to see them in kind of short spurts. And what I would love to be is just that resource. So maybe we have one session and you see a change. In fact, with my, my dating clients, a lot of them are one session. And then I, I framed that, um, sort of service as having two 10 minute follow-up calls. So I kind of help 
after we've made some some changes or implemented some things that I check in on you. And after one session and those two check-ins, people are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like that's been my experience. And in terms of sex coaching, it really depends on the issue that you're working through and how you like to work. So I offer one-offs, you know, just check in, see how things are going, see if we can make some movement happen in the first session. But I've found that with particularly couples or if there's an individual who's dating and has a particular in- like issue that they're working through, about four sessions is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And those can be once a week. Those can be once a month. It's really based on how you want to move through the work with me. Yeah, I love that. So, and I, and I love to. I mean, you mentioned so many different things you work with people on. It sounds like, and of course, correct me if if I'm not summarizing this correctly, but that it's basically for anyone who wants to have better, more fulfilling sex, right? Which is yes. everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, well, maybe not everyone, but you know. So yeah. my company, my umbrella company, is called Sex for Life, and you know, I my tagline is better sex, better life. So mm-hmm. if you want those things, come see me. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, so we will end with seven rapid fiery questions. Although your Ooh. answers, your answers don't have to be fast. But basically, um, each season, the Patreon community, the awesome folks who fund the podcast, we sort of get together and and pick a series of questions that uh, all eight guests of the season get asked. So kind of random questions, if you're down for that. Okay. Okay. If you could have a hot fling with one fictional character, who would it be? Oh, fictional character? Yeah, like book, movie, like a character, like oh. in a show or I don't know. Man, my my mind went straight to celebrity and I'm terrible with names. Um, a fictional character. Like it's less the celebrity than like, I know, you know, them playing know. Batman in this. I don't know why I just thought Batman. That certainly wouldn't be mine. But like my answer to this, and I hate myself for it, is like Edward Cullen, right? From Twilight or like something like it's like a character that you would, I don't know, <laughs> want to have some sex with. Okay. Um, it's a weird thing. This one's real weird, guys. Um, but I kind of understand it. But you might understand me a little bit more. But um, the lead guy from her, I think his last name is Twombly played by um, Joaquin Phoenix. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Would hit it. Could All right. Get it. <laughs> Would hit it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's one fact or idea that you've learned this year that's changed the way you think about either yourself or the world in general? Hmm. One fact? Or just something that you've learned this year that's been a perspective shift for you. Hmm. Um, that my, uh, my perception of myself and the world is more influential on the actual world than I could have ever imagined. Mm, I love that. What's something that didn't go as expected this year for you? I had a terrible breakup. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, it was revealed to me in February that my, my boyfriend at the time was cheating on me. So did not see that coming. Mm. Oh yeah. You wrote about this on your blog, right? I did. Mm -hmm, I did. mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say that's something that did not go as expected. (laughs) That answers that question. (laughs) Tell me about a time when you feel like you really pushed your limits when you, you know, went further than you believed possible and totally impressed yourself. Um, yeah, this year has been that I think, um, for, for what I do, it, 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 it never ends when you have your own business. Um, and to me, it's, 
sometimes a mixture of pushing myself really hard to do things that I otherwise, you know, don't necessarily have a background or skill set in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that I'm so passionate about and I love. So sometimes I forget that I'm, I'm doing all the things that I want to do, but I've really impressed myself by how much I've accomplished this year. Yeah. So good to hear. I love that. I love hearing women talk about their accomplishments. Yeah. I feel like that's something that doesn't happen enough. It's true. I'm trying to set a good example for ladies out there. <laughs> but I love, like, I feel like I want to do a whole podcast episode that's just like, come on and brag about yourself. Like, let's just do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. What's something that you plan to do less of in 2018? Hopefully talk about Trump. Oh, my God. Amen. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, the next question is, I feel like I can't even, I just have to like let that one sit there and not, <laughs> like, I can't. Um, which two or three books, any kind of book, any genre, would you say has either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most frequently? Ooh, okay. Um, hmm. I read How Should a Person Be? And I just recently remembered that I read it. Um, and it was super influential for me. Um, I also read, um, I'm trying to remember, Oh, citizen was so fucking good. Um, a book of poems. And in terms of like what I do, Oh, actually, um, men explain things to me is amazing as well. So I have to throw that in there. And then, I, I mean, that is directly tied to what I do in feminism and having this framework of, of gender. But um, the book Mating in Captivity. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed with her. She's like my wet dream podcast guest. I, I, I went to, um, to a, a talk that she did for her new book, which I bought there and got signed. Mm. Thank you very much. Yeah, I read, I read it when it came out. Yeah. <laughs> And it was really funny because she has such a fan base. There was one person, I think it was the first person who asked a question. She asked her question and she said, well, I have a two-parter. She asked the first question and then she said, and the second is, how do I apply to be your best friend? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm very interested. So um, uh, Esther Perel is who we're talking about, just for anyone who doesn't know, but... um, yeah, that just the topic of, of her second book of infidelity in general is I 100% want to have an episode all about that. Well, I'll read it and then maybe come back and give my thoughts. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I have so many thoughts. I have so many thoughts about her TED Talk. I had so many. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that was a topic that you and I didn't even go into today, but I would I would love to. She, as far as, you know, the the second question that I asked you about, you know, a fact or idea that you learned this year that changed, like, changed the way you think about stuff, it was definitely her work for me, especially... Mm-hmm. I mean, with mating in captivity, sort of this idea of how to or trying to answer the question of how to maintain desire in erotic relationships and her, I guess we'll call it thesis that the conditions that make a strong long term romantic partnership of, you know, security and stability and that sort of like love and comfort are exactly the opposite of the qualities, you know, that you were mentioning being curious and newness and separateness and that sort of uncertainty and insecurity that that's what fuels desire that they're inherently like it's not a surprise that this is such an issue for a lot of folks. Right. They are and diametrically that, like, opposed. Yeah. yeah. I, I had yeah. never heard anyone make sense on that before. Cause the common wisdom is sort of, if there's something going wrong with the sex in a relationship, then there's something wrong with the relationship. And her idea that that doesn't actually necessarily have to be true blew my mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and yeah. Uh, the thing that she says in her Ted talk about, um, 
that infidelity is often not the search for a different partner. It's the search for a different self. Yes. That was, oh my God, I could talk about her all day. Okay. <laughs> I, I was, yeah. I mean, just to add to that, I mean, it, I was very, um, I love her. And, and since I, I've been recommending mating in captivity for so long, even before I was involved in this world, um, you know, I had a lot of respect for her, but I, I was skeptical about what she would have to say about infidelity. And, and it was just such a, um, potentially triggering thing for me to go and, yeah. and, and sit through that. And I was just like, I actually sat in the front row and I was just like, let me like, you know, but I, I didn't, she, she addressed everything that I had concerns about. And I, I actually felt a great amount of comfort that the things that I felt were takeaways from my experience with infidelity were actually what she was finding. Um, and that she articulated some of these complicated, very complex, um, reasons behind infidelity mm-hmm. um that I felt were very real for yeah. my partner at the time. Oh, oh my gosh. Yeah, literally I could talk about this all day. Um so the, la- the last question, <laughs> if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take, what would it be? Yes. And I, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how there's not going to be many bros listening to this. So I'm, I'm addressing mostly women, um, that you examine how often it is that you give yourself your time, your energy to other people and designate a percentage of that back onto yourself. Let's Mm. aim for, let's aim for like 25% Mm. and test that out for a little while and see how it feels. I hope that that can make some difference and give some level levity, joy, pleasure to your life. Yeah. That sounds like very necessary action, even for me. Cause when you said 25%, that made me uncomfortable. I was like, that's too much. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Um, what's the best place for people to find you and say, hi, do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Absolutely. Well, I am on Instagram. I do some really fun things on Instagram at Myesha Battle. And my first name is spelled M-Y-I-S-H-A, last name Battle, like small war. And you can find me at MyeshaBattle.com. I'm also on Twitter at Myesha Battle. And yeah, if you just want to send a quick note, you can certainly email me through my website at MyeshaBattle.com. And you can also take a look at my services there. I love it. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Maisha, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nicole. This was great. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I absolutely couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a little round of rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I think so. (laughs) I think so. You're like nervous, right? What is she going to ask me? Um, (laughs) I know. I have no idea what you're going to ask. So I guess. (laughs) Hence hence the fun rapid fire hot seat. Well, hopefully fun. I guess you can tell me after. Um, All right. First question. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Now, to be fair, I was a little bit thinking that this was going to be one of the questions, but I just bought the... um, quill jacket from Wazelle the it's down and I know that you know you're vegan but at the same time I think they've done a good job being like responsible and stuff like that and in Ohio the down is great um and I am loving this coat I love Wazelle um yeah I'm 
96% vegan, I would say. I, I have a down jacket that I use, like a lightweight down jacket that I use for backpacking. So yeah, that was definitely a selfish choice that I made, sort of the warmth to weight ratio. So I hear you. Yeah, I just bought a couple of new Wazelle things. I haven't bought new running gear in a really long time. I think I went too far down the hole of buying things for a while. I'm like, I have enough running gear forever, but I just bought some new tights because as we were talking about off air, winter has arrived and at some point I have to stop wearing shorts. Yep, it's time. (laughs) I love it. Um, What's one place in your hometown that you'd really recommend that people check out if they travel there? Like a favorite restaurant, coffee shop, museum, bookstore, park, anything? So I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. I live in Cincinnati now. But Toledo, their kind of famous thing is Tony Paco's Restaurant, which is Hungarian hot dogs, like chili dogs. And the reason that they're famous is because um, Jamie Farr used to mention it on MASH when he was on that show. And so when when I tell people that I'm from Toledo, they're like, oh, Tony Paco's. So I really <laughs> think that like, if you're there... You should go to Tony Paco's, even if you don't eat a hot dog, because I don't like hot dogs, but it's still a cool place to go and like kind of check out a piece of Toledo history. Like they have famous people that like signed hot dog buns hanging up on the wall and stuff like that. Signed hot dog buns. I wonder how long those stay good for. Yeah, I have no idea, but they're all like in cases on the walls in the like original Tony Packers. So if you want to learn about hot dog bun preservation techniques. Yeah, ask them for sure. (laughs) That's hilarious. Um, What's one thing that you've had to let go of this year in order to move forward? Something that was holding you back that you decided to either stop doing or however you interpret that question? So I'm a runner who mostly trains for marathons at at this point, and I really had to kind of give up the control over my training. Like I have a coach, but at the same time, even though in my head, I know that, you know, they know best and I should just, you know, trust the process and all that kind of stuff. I definitely have really struggled with that in the past. And I think I'm finally to the point in my running that I am ready to just totally give in to the process and, you know, trust that my coach knows best. And, you know, we've been working together long enough that she understands me. So hopefully, you know, giving into that, I can see some real improvements. Yeah. And hopefully not be as like stressed out or anxious about it. I'm very familiar with the trying to control all the things running training experience. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, What's one decision from your past that if you had chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path in life? So I started college as an opera performance major. Oh, okay. Yeah. So if I had stayed in opera, I certainly would have a totally different career now. So I'm an accountant now (laughs) (laughs) with a master's degree in accounting. So totally different. Um, So while I don't know that I'd necessarily be performing opera, because obviously that's a tough place to get into, I definitely would not be an accountant. (laughs) What made you made that like make that change? So I transferred schools like I started at a school in Cincinnati, which is where I am now. But then I went home for a couple of years and finished up at a different school and, you know, kind of like going through the um transfer of schools and stuff like that. Like I had to audition for a new program and things like that. And so at some point it just became not as important. And so I kind of like waffled for a while between majors and like, then 
I was a literature major for a while because I really just wanted that job where I could like read books and drink coffee and that's it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a real I good job. I haven't figured yeah. out what that job is yet. <laughs> I think that job so is retirement. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. So I was like, oh, well, you know, a lot of people that are like English majors go to a business school, get an MBA or whatever. So I took a business class and it was just like the first accounting class or whatever. And it was for business majors. And the professor was a friend of my mom's. And after the first exam, he kind of pulled me aside and was like, uh, so Emily, you're kind of good at this. You got the highest grade in the class and you're an English major. So you should think about this as a career. So I kind of changed like that was probably midway through my junior year and then crammed all of the business classes into the last year and a half. Wow. Good for you. It's an interesting yeah. story. That's a big change. Opera to literature to accounting. So uh, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, they say like numbers and music kind of go together in like in your brain. So sure. maybe it's not as far as I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, the last question, what's one thing that you've recently been really wishing people were more open and honest about? That's a hard one. Um, I think I wish people were more honest about like their true feelings. You know, I think a lot of people have a hard time communicating the way they are actually feeling and either they expect you to know how they're feeling and react to it that way or are disappointed when you don't know how they're feeling, even though, you know, and I'm guilty of this too, even though they're not expressing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get that. So you're a member of our wonderful Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. So I don't know if, you know, this is something that you track or not, but I was kind of an 11th hour uh, supporter last year. Like it was last December and you were like, if we don't get this dollar amount by January 1st, 2017, then I don't know that I'm going to be able to keep doing this. And I was like, Oh, you know, other people will do it. Like I definitely wanted to keep going, but someone else will do it. And then I realized, you know what, if I am interested in this and I want it to keep going, then I need to, you know, put my money where my mouth is and support too. So really keeping the podcast going and keeping these conversations going is the reason that I wanted to be a part of it. I love that. I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for your support and I'm grateful for you bringing up that perspective of, cause I do the same thing. Not, I mean, not just with, you know, money, but with tons of other things, we always think that it's going to be, Oh, well, someone else will take care of it. Right. Someone right, else will clean right. this up. Someone else will, okay, well, but you're someone. So, you know, this idea of sort of personal responsibility, I've been thinking about that a lot. So it's interesting to hear that that was part of your decision process for joining our community. Yep, definitely. And to everyone who's listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, new stuff added all the time, lots of fun, other opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 